0: This is the MDRT Podcast. In the third and final part of the MDRT Podcast series about the DOL fiduciary rule, moderator John Nichols, Chicago, Illinois.
1: Julie McNeely, Spencer, Wisconsin.
0: And representing two countries where extensive regulations are already in place. Simon Gibson from Newmarket in the UK. And
2: Susan Patterson, Brisbane, Australia
0: address compliance, educating and preparing clients, and how to determine costs and value for a fee-based practice. I'd like to just spend a few minutes on
3: enforcement, and I see that there could be enforcement from a couple of different levels, and I'd like to hear from each of you on how you see that enforcement from the broker-dealer or the manufacturer, and then, obviously, the enforcement from the regulators. How do you see that, Julie, playing out here in the U.S.?
1: Well, I think the companies, uh, the carriers, the broker dealers, are going to monitor, I think, a lot closer uh, how we work, how we interact with clients. I've been told that our documentation of our conversations with clients is going to become really, really crucial. We have to justify the advice that we're giving. I will say, I think the part that makes it a little bit more complex here in the U.S. is. Again, the fact that we're regulated differently depending on the type of product you utilize. and In this case, now it's not only the type of product, it's the tax qualification basically of the product. So now qualified plans, 401ks, any retirement accounts, are going to be Regulated differently because of this Department of Labor rule. And if you violate, it appears that the infraction could be brought against you in the court of law, not necessarily through the traditional regulatory agency like the SEC. And so that just complicates it. So you could have the SEC coming in and saying, stop doing business this way, it's inappropriate. But you can also now have someone suing you in a court of law as a result of the regulations that are being put out by the Department of Labor. You can also have the state come and tell you not to continue to be operating in any certain manner on the insurance side of the industry. And that's typically done through a disciplinary action, not through the court system. So it can be and it probably will be a very complex way to enforce this. Some have said, how do they enforce it? They don't have a way to enforce it. They do. They do through the court of law now because it's a contract, the best interest contract will be a contract signed, and therefore you can be sued via the court system.
3: And Simon and Susan, since you've been working with the regulation for a number of years, have you seen enforcement, and if so, how, and from who, and and what does that mean?
4: There is absolutely enforcement in the UK. Uh, compliance, we would probably generally cover that with. Uh, and I think there are three levels of compliance. There's the regulator, there's the company or the business and there's self and for me compliance of self is everything if if you if you do the right thing there's never a wrong time to do the right thing i said earlier on that that we always remember whose money it is and one of the mantras that i have is that i'm always trying to help clients do what they should do sometimes they don't want to take that advice if we're doing that it is in their best interest there's no conflict of interest in that situation The other thing is that one of the ways that compliance or enforcement is is dealt with in the UK, which sounds as if it's a little different to today in the US, perhaps you're moving that way, is for many years we've had to provide a reasons why or a suitability letter. We have to do that. We cannot transact business without having produced that to a client. So that's not about the meeting notes. It's not about the fact find or what we knew about the client. It is actually writing to them and confirming why we're recommending what we're recommending, why it is suitable, why it fits in with their other plans, and indeed sometimes why they shouldn't do something. Uh, I think that's very healthy. Again, I think it's got to be done right. It, it's taken many years to get it to where I think it's probably quite a good position in the UK, uh, and perhaps that can be looked at sooner rather than later if, if that's going to have to come for, for US advisers.
2: Well, we basically embrace the same information when we're um, providing anything to a client. But interestingly, on the enforcement part, ASIC in Australia go to the insurance companies in Australia and ask for data. So they look for um, the advisers that have cancelled a lot of policies with them. They look for advisers that have placed a lot of policies with them. Then they'll actually check to see if those policies have been moved from one company to another and then they'll bring the files up and look at that as not in the best interest... So some of the people that have been banned or suspended um, have been for that reason, what they commonly call churn. However, in saying that, a lot of policies do move because under best interest now, when you review someone, if that policy, which was great for the last 10 years, isn't as good as a new policy, then you face the equation of, well, what do we do? Because this one's actually better. So there's a bit of a a mind game around that, I suppose, as to which is, is the best way forward. The broker-dealer groups are responsible for compliance, and if they do know that you have done something wrong, they have to self-report to ASIC, and if they don't self-report a breach, then the broker-dealer group gets an enforceable undertaking and it would have to do certain things of remediation or it could be suspended.
3: So, Julie, since now the regulation is out there and you're certainly uh, working with many consumers, how do you go about helping educate the consumer and I mean this is this is pretty complex and how do we bring the consumer along with us?
1: Well I've already begun talking to my clients about what's coming because it hasn't been fully interpreted yet it's kind of hard to say for sure how it's going to change our relationship but I am letting them know that changes are coming and that that also may require us to change the way we work together. Typically, the response I receive from my clients is, well, I don't care how I have to pay you. I still want to work with you. And that certainly is reassuring to me as an advisor. But I think that we need to be as upfront and informing our clients as much as possible as we understand the way the rule is going to ultimately shake out. And so I think from the consumer perspective, they think of this somewhat as a bit of noise. And they are, at this point, fine with paying me in a different way. They just want to know that they can continue to get the advice and work with me as their as their advisor. So they don't tend to want to get into the details of it. And I don't know that we necessarily need to give them all the gory details, but we certainly need to inform them that changes are coming and how those changes came about. So, so I think, you know, from my perspective, consumers certainly need to know, but they also... Um, they just want good advice
3: so have you thought through if you're going to move to a fee-based type of practice I mean how are you going to determine what level of fee would you charge I mean isn't it kind of confusing for advisors right now because if you're just starting this process
1: yeah it, it is confusing and I think that from my perspective I have started to charge flat fees for types of advice for example a flat fee for a financial plan that wasn't something I had ever done, and, and, and just to be clear, I mean, I live in a very small rural community in Wisconsin, so my typical client maybe looks very different than someone else's typical client. Um, I tend to serve very middle-income consumers, and so for me to come to them and say, I'm going to charge you $5,000 a year to give you advice... I don't know how many clients I'd have continue to work with me. But I can come to them and say, hey, we're going to spend a lot of extra time really working on this plan. And because of that, we're going to charge a fee to do that, but we think it's going to give you this, this, and this. And they they completely are embracing that. And so that's the first step we've taken is to begin charging for pieces, flat fees for pieces of advice, which feels very comfortable for me to ask. And I think the next step then would be to uh, charge a fee for managing the accounts that we currently manage.
3: And so, just back up one piece so, how did you arrive at that initial cost? fee mm-hmm. and and so did you what research did you do what did you communicate with and maybe your study group did you did the broker dealer educate you you know how did you even get to the initial starting line of
1: hey we're going to start
3: charging fees
1: i would say all of the above i have a study group you know talking to them about how they currently charge fees some of them do some don't a lot of them are in the same boat that I am. Second is a producer group within my broker dealer. That's about 30 advisors. Again, most of them are just like me. They're they're primarily commission based and have just started to to move into that commission or the fee-based world. So it's been talking to them and really determining what other advisors in my area are charging because I think it It has something to do with the geographic area that you live in and the type of clientele that you serve. So it's really been researching sort of all of those things. And my broker-dealer had many templates and things that I could use. Um, I've attended the fee-based advisory conference for my broker-dealer for the last four years, again, anticipating and leading up to the point where we're going to start to charge fees. So it's educating myself, asking lots of questions, doing research, and landing on that final fee.
3: And do you think in the end that all your customers are going to be able to come along or a certain portion of them?
1: I would say a portion will come along. I have many clients that I currently serve that just are not going to be candidates for fee-based advice, although I'm often surprised when I talk to them about this flat fee and tell them all the great things it's going to provide them and the clarity that it's going to give them in their financial house many are willing to pay a fee that I didn't necessarily think they would so i'm not going to exclude people i'll explain to them uh, you know what the the way that things are going to change as far as how we get compensated And I hope that many will come along, but I would anticipate there will be several clients that I won't be able to continue to serve.
3: Do you think that opens up a space for a junior advisor within your firm to be able to serve those that may not be able to afford or want to afford that uh, level?
1: We've already begun talking in our firm about different service models. So, you know, this model's going to give you all of these things, uh, and if you can't bite that model... Than perhaps this one down here, which will be more of a junior advisor, even more of a service type uh, arrangement where we're not spending significant amounts of time doing formal plans and all of that. So uh, there's going to be some difference in the way we serve our clients.
3: And Simon, as you've had the most experience, 14 years or so or more in the fee-based model, what advice would you provide a U.S. advisor in, in establishing the how
4: I wouldn't suppose to tell anybody how to do it in the sense that my business will be different to your business, to Julie's, to Susan's, et cetera, et cetera. I think when we're talking about the consumer, if we're already a trusted advisor, that's a big plus for the reasons that Julie has highlighted. I think we have to look at the why as well as the how. I think an explanation of why we're doing what we're doing uh, is important. And we've got to understand that ourselves so that we can communicate that brilliantly to clients. And communication is the key word here. It really is. Communication internally with ourselves, if you like, certainly turning that round and making sure that we are just using all the right words at the right time with the consumer is absolutely essential. In terms of fees, which was just covered, you can do fee-based, but you've got to make sure that you look at three things. You've got to think about the internal costs. Don't set your fees too low to run your business. That doesn't make any sense. You can't have a loss-leading business. You can have a loss-leading client if if that works for you. You can't have a loss-leading business. The second thing is, by all means, use time. Remember, though, and I started 16 years ago on a a time basis, that your time is limited. That does limit the size and success of your business. Uh, That's important. We are running businesses as well as being there to help the consumers. And think very importantly about the value. That's really important. You asked about what happens with some of the clients, If, if they, will they all come along? In my experience, I made the point uh, earlier, when I spoke to clients, hopefully brilliantly, about this, they generally said yes. Some didn't. I did what I call a mothballing exercise and I wrote to them and I said, we're going to stop providing you with advice at this point. If in the future you'd like to come back to us for advice, you can ring up, we can have a chat about that and then we'll work on what the fee should be at that time. And that meant that I didn't tell them I'd stop loving them, but maybe I'd stop seeing them for a while. And the final thing is that going back to regulation, the the, the regulators in the UK some years ago came up with something called treating customers fairly. They did not call it treating customers equally. And it's really important that we think about that as well in our businesses. We do not have to have one set of fees for all of our clients. When I started out... I absolutely did not get it perfectly right in the first year. I set three different levels, and I was the only advisor, I had one member of staff, one office, two computers, two desks, a kettle, but I set three different levels of advice and fee for clients depending on what I thought they wanted, and that was really appreciated. That really worked from the word go. This is going to be new for people, some will be very accepting of it, some will have wanted it. Others won't be so sure. We've just got to work out what we want to do and cater for that.
2: I agree with both Julie and Simon and everything that you've said. I think for myself, beginning that charging fee process, it was really hard for me initially to feel the value in my own mind of myself. So, you know, my passion and my want and my belief in doing what I do just has no bounds. But all of a sudden I sort of found that I was finding it very difficult to put value on my own worth of what I do, and I actually used, um, I did all the things that Julie said, I also used on the MDRT resource zone, there's a part on fees, on fee-based practices, and there's a couple of spreadsheets and different marketing tools, and I've downloaded all of those and spent a weekend and actually went through and worked out the real cost of the business, and you're just amazed at how much... Your hourly rate is actually worth to cover off all the things that are in that business, and that was a really worthwhile tool because then I walked away thinking, well, not only am I worth that, but I'm actually worth that much more. And the other things that I looked on that were, you know, different letters of engagement. Tried to get letters of engagement of other advisors, read through those, and when you're reading really good letters, you believe it as much as the client does, and I think. And I'm not saying that we don't do it, I just had to get my own head into the space of having that self-worth and self-value to be able to justifiably say it to someone, where now I don't take a second look. And it's just, yeah, that's it.
4: I talked about make sure we understand what the costs of the business are. Susan's highlighted that again. Don't forget to build in a profit. My clients really value the fact that I have a sustainable business model. I'm likely to have a business that will be there for when they need us to be there. They're not that interested in whether we're there just today and tomorrow. They really want to know about us being there in the future. If we build a sustainable business model, which includes a profit, they will understand and people will buy into that.
3: Well, speaking of the future, Julie, if you could take out your crystal ball, what do you foresee for the future as we move forward?
1: Well, I think it could potentially be a very exciting time for uh, advisors in the U.S. I think if you can embrace this change. We've obviously heard from Susan and Simon who have embraced it in their own countries and obviously have continued to find success i think there's absolutely no reason why us advisors can't also grab that and i personally think that this is just the push i needed to get moving in a different direction and sometimes we can get really comfortable where we're at because it's the way we've always done it mm. that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way or the best way to serve our clients This is, without question, going to push a lot of people to look differently at their practice. And I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing.
3: Julie, from a standpoint of company interpretation of these rules, whether it be a broker-dealer or an insurance company with a broker-dealer, do you see that they're all going to be operating in the same manner? or what's going to happen?
1: I really don't. I I think that each company and their legal department will interpret it in a very different way, which is a risk that we always run. I've seen this happen before with other regulation that's come out. We have some that take a very strict view. Um, For example, the company I spoke of earlier that determined it was not worth the risk to stay in the retirement market and pulled all their advisors out and said you can't participate in that space any longer and they took a very strict interpretation of the rule. Other companies will be less strict, however, if you are an independent advisor or write for multiple companies, you will have very probably differing ways that each company will interpret that rule.
3: So it's going to put more pressure on your firm and your staff and yourself to be cognizant of what is transpiring at various companies, so you're obviously operating within their guidelines.
1: Correct. Correct. And they may also have varying degrees of training on this new regulation. And so as advisors, we're really going to have to be very mindful that we're, we're checking all the boxes before we can continue to interact with our clients.
3: You know, we were talking about fees, and as you were building your model to kind of set those fee levels, you kind of said you looked to your study group, you looked to your broker dealer, you actually even looked into your market. Uh, And I know you're in a smaller market, but for those advisors that are in a larger market with, you know, many advisors, you know, what's going to happen there? I mean, do you see it kind of leveling out? Is there fierce competition? uh, Is there more shopping by the actual client? Well, look at, I'm only being charged X here and I can go to Tom over here and be charged Y. How do you see that play out?
1: Well, I'm I'm guessing Simon and Susan will agree that a value has to be delivered to the client. So uh, we have no intention of charging a fee without providing great value. And if we can demonstrate the value we're providing, I'm not worried that the fee won't be appropriate, especially if we've done our homework in our market and made sure that we're not over the top with that fee. But to me, that means a lot of different things, uh, serving them in a different way, including them in client appreciation events, educational events, ongoing uh, financial literacy. I mean, that just continuing to monitor their situation in a very robust way, I think, all of those things will provide the value, and I don't think the fee will become something we compete over if the value is there.
0: In many firms,
3: it's no longer acceptable to just be a product vendor. Correct. A place where I'm going to buy a product. It's, there has to be something more.
1: It's relational, and you know, many of my clients have become great friends. Uh, they call me for lots of things beyond the financial world, um, advice on things I would have never expected to give advice on, but, and that's okay. We have a great relationship. I know a lot about them and their situation, and so it becomes more of a strong friendship versus just a client and advisor relationship.
4: Simon? This is a relationship business, John. That's the top and bottom of it. When you're talking about the regulations in the US, obviously it's new and it's coming and there's a little bit of a time scale. We have what we have in the UK. I'm reminded again of Winston Churchill and he said out of intense complexities, intense simplicities arise. And he said that in 1929 and he was basically saying keep it simple. And when you're thinking about your fee structure, keep it as simple as you can. That would be the first tip. The second thing is do not get into a price war. Uh, you don't need to. I agree with Julie, we've, we've said it before, value is what is important and I'm reminded of the sign I once saw in a printer's window many years ago and in big letters it said good, quick, cheap and in smaller letters underneath it said pick any two. And I think we've got to take that approach when we're, we're looking at what we're doing. Be unique, be authentic, whatever you want to, whatever word you want to use. Uh, we've talked about the communication being brilliant. Keep it simple, make sure there's value in there. And people will be happy with that. What would be one piece of value that uh, you attribute to your fee? Okay, well, I'll always take their phone call. I mean, that that might sound an odd thing to say, but I I know that sometimes clients have come to us and they've come to us because people won't return their phone calls, and that's the people who are supposedly advising them. We ask clients to make a promise when they join us, when they become clients. Sometimes a second promise, depending on what we're doing. The main promise is you've got a promise to come and see us every year. We will have an annual meeting for the fee. We will do everything around that annual meeting. We will make sure we deliver those things. We've taken it further within our business. We have a monthly touch point with our clients because we send them a a newsletter which we write ourselves by email every month. They get that. It's not free, it's at our expense. It's because they're clients of ours. Uh, We put on client events. We do other things. People will decide what's best for them depending on the structure of their business. It goes back to a point that I made earlier on. Look at what we actually do. Make sure clients understand that we do that. There's value in there already. They haven't got to start often going and doing new things. But it is a relationship business.
3: And have you done kind of a market research within your area to determine kind of where your fee uh, stands in, in relationship to others?
4: I think you're going to like this answer. No, I haven't. Never planned to, never intended to, don't intend to now. We are good at what we do. It won't suit everybody. If we do a good job, then we will have clients who are happy to pay our fee. Great. Susan?
2: Well, sort of touching on what Simon just said, I have to say as far as do I think that somebody would price shop me? No, I don't. If somebody came in as a client and I started talking to them and you have an idea fairly early on that there is going to be a lot of work here, sometimes it can be because there's a lot of work and sometimes because this client themselves by personality is a lot of work. If I knew that the client by personality was a lot of work, I would charge more right from the start because I would just know look, this is not going to be the same as dealing with Joe Smith down the road. And if Betty Blocks, who's a lot of work, doesn't want to pay that and wants to go somewhere else, then I'm happy for that. So I'm very confident when I face up and say that this is what it is. I'd also say size of markets. You know, if we sit here and we say we've got an underinsurance problem in every one of our countries, you know, we can have however many advisors, but we've got how many people that actually need advice... And I really don't think we touch near the the surface of it. So I find it hard to think that there's that many of us with all of those clients that there's not enough to really go around and grab if we're not good enough at what we do. And then on the other side of the markets, probably the one point of concern I would have is the market size at the moment of consumers is huge. And then we have a certain market size of advisors. But if the market size of advisors rationalises or decreases then there's probably going to be an easy ability for advisors to increase their pricing when they get the idea that that's where it goes, and that may not end up being a good consumer outcome. So again, you know, a um,
1: non-intended consequence of things that may happen through changes. I have been talking about going to a fee-based firm for many years, and now I'm being forced to really seriously look at it. Talking about it and actually doing it are two very different things because... I will tell you most of the problem is in my own head. And as I've slowly started to move in this arena and started to talk to clients about it, um, I'm astounded by the number of them that are getting their check out and writing me a check for a financial plan where in the past I didn't ask for that fee. So I'm beginning to understand that this is just noise in my own head and not truly an obstacle clients will need to face. truthfully, if you can get past what's going on in your head, um, I think it'll be a whole lot easier process. And it's great to hear that other people have already got through that noise themselves.
0: That's the end of our podcast series on the DOL fiduciary rule. Thank you for listening. If you would like to subscribe to hear episodes on a variety of other topics, you can find us on iTunes at MDRT podcast. See you next time.